The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. What comes to your mind when you hear the words, Judgment Day? Popular movies and TV shows are any clue. Most people think of something like the end of the world. Like the old movie called simply Judgment Day with the plot of asteroids coming to destroy the earth and needing to stop them. The slightly more recent offering, Asteroid Apocalypse. Guess what that's about? It's a common theme. Maybe it's nuclear war. Maybe it's Asteroids, maybe it's aliens, maybe it's climate change, maybe some form of rogue artificial intelligence. Something or another is coming that threatens to destroy the planet and human life. We all need to band together to try to stop it in time. Something like that is commonly what comes to mind with words like Armageddon, apocalypse, the end. But all of that heads in one direction and misses something difficult. Judgment. We like to scrub out that concept. We're willing to talk about disaster and trouble and destruction, but we, we are very uncomfortable with something or someone standing over us judging Passing a verdict that's based on a standard, making a decision about us and everyone and everything everywhere. We try to avoid that. It's difficult. It's hard. It's hard to talk about it even. But that's what the book of the prophet Joel is all about in the end. Because, in fact, it is one of the most important facts that we all need to know. Judgment Day is coming, and that is a day of judgment. This passage in front of us, chapter 3 of Joel, the conclusion of this very short book, is a serious passage and an amazing one. Not amazing in a sense of cool or intriguing, amazing in the sense of if you read it and if you mentally engage with it and if you see what it's about, it causes all of us to sit back and wonder, to be amazed. It's a very important passage, a very important issue that helps us to be ready for something that's coming. And at the same time, so notice these two things here. It helps us to be ready for something that's coming, but it also then it helps us to live well now. And I mean that in two distinct ways. There is a day of judgment that's coming, and to realize that will help us to be prepared for that. But then, being prepared for that, if you wind that back to now, it significantly affects, in, in a relieving and rejoicing way, significantly affects how we live all this life on the way to that day. So those are things we're going to see here as we look at this third chapter of Joel. I'm going to make two observations from it as we go along, but I'm going to read it in pieces and try to clear up some of the facts because there are a, a lot of significant facts here that we need to we need to see. So I'm going to read it, beginning in verses 1 to 8, and discuss it as we go along. So please follow along in a Bible and follow this closely. There are a number of details here. This is Joel, chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel 
because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You've sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a nation far away. For the Lord has spoken. Pause there. Verse 1 gives us a time frame, but like we've said before, it's not a very exact time frame because the prophets always talk about time as if they are looking at a mountain range. It's a common illustration. You've probably heard this. You look at the peaks of a mountain range and they look like they are one right behind another. It's not until you get an overhead view that you realize the time between them, the space. Well, the prophet looks ahead at the future and, and just simply says, in the days and at the time when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, when he does what we just read about last week, pours out his spirit on his people to restore. Then, in those days, at that time, comes the judgment. In other words, sometime around now, ever since Christ came and ever since the Spirit was outpoured, we are in the last days. Kind of like if you walk into a room and you hear a grandfather clock tolling. You know there's only going to be 12 chimes, but you don't know which one that one was. Where are you in the process? I don't know. But we're in those days and that time. This is around now, the day of the restoration and judgment. Verse 2 then, I will, says the Lord. Most of this chapter is God speaking. It's God active. It's God initiating. God summoning. This is the world left to deal with God. I will gather all the nations, that is, all the peoples of all the world. I will bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, there's no actual valley called the valley of Jehoshaphat. This is an allusion to something God did during the reign of a king of Judah named Jehoshaphat whose name means, get this, God judges. That's what Jehoshaphat means. And you can read about these events in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. A great horde of enemies came up against the people of Judah and Jerusalem, and they turned and looked to God for help. And God told Jehoshaphat, that his people would not have to fight against all these enemies. They would simply march out and find this massive group of enemies all dead at the end of the valley east of the wilderness of Jeruel. And that's what happened. All the enemies were all destroyed by God in the valley for Jehoshaphat. Drawing on that imagery and on the meaning of that word, then God says, I will bring them all, all the nations, down to the valley of God judges. And guess what I will do to them there? I will judge them. On behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel. Now, from this point on the passage, we get a, a brief Detour. It goes on a little bit of a tangent here. Notice how down in verse 9, which we haven't read yet, but of course we'll come to, he comes back onto this idea of the nations and gathering them into the valley. So he's, he's clearly got this, this scope. The focus of the whole chapter is universal. It's the great day of the Lord here at the end. 
But in, the, in this little section, he kind of goes off on a little detour to talk about another, if you will, minor day of the Lord as an illustration, as a support for the big day. This day, this, this judging, it will be like what happened with the ancient cities of Tyre and Sidon for what they did in history to the people of Israel. And look how many times, not just the people of Israel, but look how many times God uses the possessive my. He's identifying very closely with his people. It's my people and my heritage that you scattered among the nations. You divided up my land and you human trafficked my people, my children even. In verse 5, you took my silver and my gold and my rich treasures. Are you trying to pay me back for something? Well, then I will return to you exactly what is due. Justice. You sold my people into slavery. Well, I will use them to sell you into slavery. End of verse 8. For the Lord has spoken. This is a judgment. Predicting and enacting of justice on God's part. Very specific. And when it came to pass in history, as it did, God brought Alexander the Great sweeping through this region and he wiped out Tyre and Sidon and the land of Philistia and sold all those people into slavery. It happened in history. And when it happened in history, what we're suppo- why this is here, what we're supposed to do with this is say, God spoke for the Lord has spoken, said this would happen. My goodness, it did Exactly like he said. And as we're going to see here, nine and following, he's also going to speak about something else, a great day. And what we're supposed to do is say, that will happen too. Exactly like he said. This is an illustration of that. This is a pointer towards that. The Lord spoke and it happened. The Lord spoke and it will happen. Verse 2, for all the nations. So with this illustration, what do you think is going to happen to all the nations who oppose and afflict all my people, who attack and seek to destroy all of my kingdom? What's going to happen over all of the earth? Verse 9, proclaim this to all the nations. Let's read. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. And let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. Pause there again. This is a call to all the world to mobilize for war. The mighty men, the men of war, those would be the professional soldiers. Get them ready. Bring them. And then verse 10, mobilize the farmers. The the vast majority of any society back then would have been farmers, and the vast majority of any army during time of war mobilized farmers. So take all your farm implements and turn them into weapons and come. 
and then everybody else, the weak, everybody else in society, them too. I'm in the army now. I'm a soldier too. Bring everybody. Hurry. Bring your army, every nation, everyone a warrior. Gather yourselves here. It's a call to arms. Issued by whom? By the one who already in verse 2 said that he was going to gather all the nations. This is God speaking. And there is apparently a big battle brewing. Six, seven billion people on one side, give or take. Everybody from all the nations. And it's as if an onlooker says here in a, in a single sentence, oh my, look at that massive army. Lord, bring your warriors too. Bring down your, your heavenly hosts. Bring your army too. There is going to be a massive battle. The armies of heaven and those of the nations mobilized and arrayed here in the valley of Jehoshaphat. But it's not much of a battle, in fact. For there I will sit. Not stand, not fight, not swing a sword. There I will sit. The armies of the world gather to fight, and there God will sit to judge the nations. He gathered them all. They turned every implement they possibly could into a weapon, and God brought one weapon, a throne. And he sits down on it and says, done. The imagery here is so, so powerful. In many ancient cultures, a judge or a ruler or, or some sort of a leader would sit and would, and would discuss and then would say, I've come to my conclusion, and he would sit upon his seat and say, here's the verdict. While they stand and discuss, things are ongoing. Perhaps it will change. Perhaps this will be modified. But when the one in charge sits, it's over. Because the next thing to come out of that one's mouth is the verdict. He sits to judge the nations. And here's the answer. Their evil is great. So put in the sickle and harvest them. Mow them down like grass. And step into the winepress and tread them down. Crush them. Multitudes of teeming multitudes in the valley of decision, the valley of God judges. Here is the day of the Lord now, right up close and personal. As the end of the world happens, the earth grows dark and the Lord roars from Zion and makes heaven and earth quake under his wrath. Utterly dreadful. Full of dread. Teaching us the following sober point. Here's the first observation. The Lord surely is bringing his day of final, total, just wrath which all alike deserve. The Lord surely is bringing His day of final, total, just wrath which all alike deserve. Clearly, this day of the Lord is the great and final one that all the other minor days of the Lord are pointing toward. Whether it's God dealing with his own people through a locust plague, chapters 1 and 2, or dealing with other nations and cities like Tyre and Sidon here in chapter 3, or even dealing with us and this world in today's day with plagues and financial crisis and social unrest, 
all along through all of that, all such minor days of the Lord, and there are many throughout all of history of all kinds of different varieties and different places to different magnitudes, in all of them, they are all of a single cloth, and they are all pointing towards one final day that is coming, and here it is. A day of total, complete, finished work. All the nations, all peoples, all gathered together by God into the place of judgment where he sits down to settle accounts. And he is the righteous and just God of all the earth. There is no other God. There aren't ten gods or fifty gods or a hundred gods gathered to assess their various peoples. There is only one God the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who made it all, who owns it all, who reigns over all of it and calls every single person to come stand before him as he renders verdict. And his verdict is accurate. Their evil is great. And so final wrath is due. Verses 13 and following are devastating. Unless we think this is some sort of Old Testament anger God, this is all over the Bible, all over the New Testament too. We could pick a place. Think of Paul in 2 Thessalonians. Several verses there in chapter 1 resonate with this. Paul writing the church says, Indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Sounds similar. This will happen when Christ comes in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance, it says in the New Testament, on those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction when he comes on that day. The Apostle Paul. Or the Apostle John writing the book of Revelation. Surely with this very chapter of Joel on his mind, this is Revelation 14, John describes angels come with sharp sickles, reaping, harvesting the earth, gathering then clusters of wine branches, vines, and throwing them all into the great winepress of the wrath of God, it says. And that winepress was tread down outside the city. You can find other references, Old Testament, New Testament. Jesus himself speaks of a coming judgment that is fearsome and terrible, from which point on there will be never-ending weeping and gnashing of teeth. This day... A final, total, just wrath is coming. And this is told to us here, and as it's told to us here, we should be almost instinctively responding to it in a couple different ways. First, in, in one general way, it, it should make us shake and fear with urgency. One general direction. It should make us shake with fear and urgency. And then secondly, I say this very carefully, oddly then, oddly then, it should put us at ease and give us great encouragement. Both oddly together. First, shaking sorrow with urgency. Men and women, this is no game. This is no game. It is devastating, tragic, frightening. Nothing compares to falling into the hands of the living God who sees 
and has seen all and who will perfectly, correctly, justly settle every single account with what is exactly right and deserved. Notice the theme, I will return your payment on your own head. It says that twice in verses 4 and 7. I will give exactly what is right. Verse 21, we haven't read this yet, but it's the end. Skip ahead. You can look at the very last verse of the, of the whole book. I will avenge their blood. Blood I have not avenged yet to this point. It may seem, from our perspective, that people get away with stuff. There's blood, not avenged. That one slipped by. That one was, was covered up. That one was, was hidden. He got away with it. They, they all got away with it. No one notices and time moves on. It may seem like that. But in fact, God saw and took a note. For this time, when he settles it, he sees and knows all evil, and he is just. So be aware of this for yourself. There is warning in this for those of us who who are named among the people of God. There is warning in this for all people. Be aware of this. All that we have done is seen and known and will be settled. And all that has been done to us, all that has been seen and will be settled. There is an urgency in this, a a calling for us to turn, but in particular, an, an urgency. This is what we are speaking of and warning the nations about. At the bottom, this is the issue in life. Now, that's not to say there aren't a hundred, a thousand other issues in life. There are indeed, and often, very often, we can look at the the scriptures and we can look at people's lives and we can say, notice the goodness of God, notice the wisdom of God, notice the the help of God. That connects to the various assorted needs of life, and very often that is how God speaks first and connects to people. Indeed, and we should talk about those things. Absolutely. It is very, very, very often the goodness, the kindness of God that draws people to repentance. We should talk about that. But notice, draws people to repentance because at the end, it does not matter how one has lived and how successful and wise one has been. Everyone dies and faces this day. No matter how we've lived, no matter what we've done, everyone dies. And at the end, then everyone faces the verdict of God. And the verdict of God in his word is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so verse 13 awaits all alike in the valley of decision, all. And this is what ultimately we are warning the nations about and warning our friends and our family and our neighbors and co-workers, everyone, alerting to them to this with urgency. But notice something there. I just slipped into some us-them language. We, us, warning them. Which is similar to the language of the passage. The nations and the people of God, there's an us-them. I just use that language myself, which is entirely appropriate for one reason only. Because we are better people than them. Is that right? By no means. By no means. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Us too. Me too. And you. 
and all alike deserve, verse 13. My evil is very great. And so is yours. All alike deserve this. The Scripture's verdict is clear. There is no one righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He and His standard is the standard against, we, against which we are compared. Now, we may struggle with that because we may look around and say, well, I'm better than so-and-so or we are better than them. We're not comparing ourselves this way horizontally. The judge's evaluation is against one divine standard, against him himself who is perfect and righteous and holy. And he has told us in his word what that standard is, summarized very cleanly. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with everything in you, all of your all. Every single thing you have, every single thing you are, love him. And then love your neighbor as yourself. Total devotion And it's a binary evaluation, yes, no, not sort of. There is no one righteous, no, not one. We all stand no chance, except for this. End of verse 16. The Lord himself is a refuge to his people when he roars in judgment and makes the heavens shake. The Lord himself is our refuge against the wrath of the Lord. The only way to safely flee from and be protected from the wrath of God is by fleeing into the arms of God, the arms of God that are gracious and merciful in one particular way. How is it that the Lord himself can be a stronghold for anyone who turns to him? Well, his name is not written here in the Old Testament, but this is a gigantic neon sign pointing at Jesus. We just read last week that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you you just skim back up just a couple of verses before our chapter, verse 32, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That was another description of the same day. Saved from this day. Saved from this wrath. Saved in Jesus That's what Joel wrote in chapter 2. There's a way out. And that's what Peter, understanding all this, preached in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. Everyone, the door is open. Everyone, everyone has a ticket to a valley, but here's the way out. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And the ticket canceled. That alone is why we and them language fits. It's appropriate. That's the only reason. It has nothing to do with us and everything to do with Jesus. And if you right now, if, if, if you're listening to this, and right now you find yourself amongst the them category, saying, I, I think he's talking to a people that I'm not one of, then we plead with you with urgency and with tears, not with anger by any stretch of the imagination, but with an urgency and with tears. Become one of us. Trust Christ, call upon the name of the Lord and be saved from this day. Because it is coming and when it comes, it will be too late. If he summons you to the valley, you are lost. We respond to this first with a, with a sense of, of sober-minded shaking and urgency. But you can almost see the seeds being laid there. It, there's also a, if you get that and, and understand, then the second kind of instinctive response is one of, Rest and and ironic encouragement. 
This is written, if, if you think about how, how the Bible is put together, this is the book given to the people of God. So primarily, Christian, this is speaking to you. And it indeed, as we said last week, it's calling out to, to those named the people of God and, and saying, you know, be real about this, be serious about this, turn, turn to Christ, be sure you do. But it's acknowledging most of us here have. And so what this is supposed to do for us is open up a vista and lead to a, an ironic rest. God is certainly, not only, but certainly refuge to us in Christ, but something else we see here is he is also a warrior for us. Closely identifying with us. Judging, it says, to defend us, to avenge our blood. Judging on behalf of my people, says that in verse 2. And giving particular reminder to us, particular emphasis was all that my, my, my. He wants to say something in that to you, Christian. I see you. I know you. I see what's happened to you, what's been done to you. I will defend you. I will settle that. I will call it to account. How they treated you, I know it. It's how they treated me. I feel it. Nobody gets away with anything. It may seem like that for some period of time. They, they may have done this or that, and, it, and they may have appeared to then ascended to power and gotten away with it. But there is one who has noted it and is a warrior for us and will make all things right. This is a very important piece of perspective. When we encounter personal problems ourselves, or in particular, maybe right now we look around and see a world all around us that is departing from any semblance of biblical truth. And it is. And therefore, it is increasing in opposition to biblical Christians. And it is. The world's going in one direction, away from God, and it's picking up speed. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about that? When you read news story X about Supreme Court decision Y, laws A, B, C passed, laws X, Y, Z trampled on, rights X, Y, Z trampled on. How do you feel about that? <sighs> I, can't, I can't draw a breath. Or... Which is it? We should be concerned. And we still live in a world in which, in the United States, it is still possible to affect change and influence. Yes, feel free, good. But ultimately, we should feel concerned for the world because we've read Joel 3. And we know. I don't need to fight. Teach, plead, yes. Fight for the truth in the church, yes. And in our families, yes. That's where we're told to fight for the truth. But we're told to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Which we can do because someone else will fight. And he'll do it just right. 
in just the right time, whether it be when he calls Tyre and Sidon in some minor day, when he calls them to account, maybe then, or maybe he'll write it all down and hold it off, not avenging it, but hold it off to the end when he settles it all. One way or the other, he sees us and he sees what's going on and he says to you, Christian, I got it. Your job, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, protect the church and your families, and trust me. This is what people should find in us when they bump into us. Some sort of a hope that makes them say, you should be really threatened. I would expect you to be sucking in air, (laughs) but you're not. What, What is the reason for the hope that is in you? There should be something that kind of resonates along those lines out of us when people bump into us. May we then be ready to give an answer for that hope. Because we've read Joel 3, we can. And with urgency, we can warn with love, pleading. This kind of understanding gives us the best of all possible eternal perspectives. If we think about this, we respond with some sort of a shaking urgency and then, ironically, a calmed encouragement. Particularly so when we see the second observation. Follow along now as I read from verse 17 on. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. And Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk. And all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever in Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. Secondly, then, here's the second observation. In his final judgment, God also completes the full restoration of creation. In his final judgment, God also completes the full restoration of all the creation. Look at how this comes right on the heels of this dreadful judgment. This is the restoration then See the pairing here of the days pointing to the day. This is the restoration that all the previous restorations were pointing to, whether it be the great restoration of of the actual land in chapter 2 or then the restoration of the outpouring of the Spirit, like rain falling on the land giving life, but better than rain, the Spirit falling down. All of those restorations also are pointing towards some other great restoration, this one. After all the trouble that's due to sin happens, and after God deals with all of the sin, deals with all the trouble, what's left? Glory. Glory for God who solved it all, and glory for those who survived the trouble by calling on his name in faith. Glory in a new, renewed, glorious creation where finally everything fully and completely is made right like it was meant to be, and it will never be undone ever again, ever. you got to let your mind run around in these verses. Can you picture it? God dwelling amidst his people. Starts there and ends there. And what God is, 
is now finally what the people are. Holy. And the place where God with them is. Holy. The mountain is holy and the city, the people, holy. And no threatening stranger will ever again pass through. It's secure. And it's flourishing. The mountains are dripping. The hills are flowing. The stream beds, too, flowing. And a spring erupts right in the middle of the temple. All these items, they're, they're things that, that are needed for life. Wine, God gives wine for gladness and milk for nourishment and water for watering all the crops and giving life, refreshment. But what's emphasized here most pointedly is not the things, but the abundance. Dripping and flowing and flowing and springing up. The overflowing nature of nature Here is the land of blessing, no longer any cursing, just the land of blessing with no shortage. This is a place physically that oozes life. It is a veritable garden of goodness. And the traditional long-standing enemies of Egypt and Edom, thorns in the side forever because of all the violence that did against people of God. They're gone. No need to plan for them, protect against them, watch out. For, nope, gone. God finally avenges all the blood of his people, happening because the Lord dwells in Zion, in the midst of his holy people, in a holy place, full a flowing abundance. This could be the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2. But it's really the new and improved Garden of Eden, the new heaven and the new earth, the Revelation 21 and 22. It's the beginning and the end of the Bible. This is the story. This is the storyline of the Bible. God's plan always to dwell among his holy people in a land, in a place, in a world, a creation of flowing, beautiful, blessed abundance. It started there in Genesis 2, and after all the tears, it finally ends there in Revelation 21 and 22. We are headed to the Garden of Eden redone new and improved, the land itself gloriously free from curse and prospered in every way possible. And then, God in our midst. We're not going to float around somewhere in in some cloud. We're going to stand in a place that oozes with life. And then, God in our midst, holy, 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 and sweet and beautiful, flowing. It's the kingdom of shalom, the kingdom of peace and righteousness and justice all made possible because God finally wiped away all evil and removed its threat forever and made all things new. Christian, let this fill your mind. This ultimate glorious future, let it fill your mind in every day like today. May it fill your mind more than the coming judgment and more than the coming threat of discipline in any day before that day. More than any of that, more than the fear of sorrowful pain or shortage or suffering or any, from any of these light and momentary afflictions, may this day of restoration fill your mind and give you an overwhelming hope and a great and glorious desire to see it come. A hope that's not because we got this. There's going to be a vaccine. No, a hope because this day is coming. And you've seen it. And we pray for a vaccine. Sure, great, wonderful. Until the next trouble comes along, the end of all the trouble. 
and the coming of life. May that fill your mind in days like this. May it ooze out of you so people wonder, what's the hope behind that smile? What's the hope behind that hope? May God build this in me and in you and in all of us, that there would be a life hidden in us that's fixed on a hope that's sure in coming. Fix your eyes on this one who is your life, this one who is coming, not only to judge, but to bring to you your life. May that fill your mind and fill your heart and fill your life because that kind of a hope, fixed on that kind of a hope, if you think about the logic here, you could jot down Colossians 3 and following and you could see an eye, a mind fixed on heavenly things where life is hidden and from where life is coming and the reality that it will come. That fixated mind is the one that gives this life away now in love and in service to others. Faith and love now comes from hope. There's a day that's coming and it's on his way. This is what people should find in this. Hopeful hearts that do not fear what is fearful now. There certainly is stuff to fear now, but we don't fear it. Because we have a hope in a day that is certain. It is a day that is in part dreadful and in part glorious. May the Lord grab your mind and your heart with these truths and give you a perspective on life. May He do that. May He enable you to see the day. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.